Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person dreaming of food forest. And that's the topic for today's show. Uh, We're going to be talking about food forest with Russ Henry. And later in the show, we're going to be checking in with Seward Co-op about their in-person. The CSA Fair is now in-person on Saturday, April 23rd from 11 to 2. But first, welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, Russ Henry. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. So you're the president of Minnehaha Falls Landscaping and Giving Tree Gardens, founder of Be Safe Minneapolis, and been working to protect and grow ecosystems that's, for decades. That's right. We do a lot of work to clean water, so carbon, uh, carbon sequestration in soils, and uh, protect pollinators, bees and butterflies. And so I shared with you um, right now, I'm, I'm actually kind of sad because four ash trees I had to mm-hmm. cut down mm-hmm. in my yard because of the um, emerald ash borer. So, and that's just, I'm like one in five trees in the Twin Cities yep. are ash trees. And so what, what's it's your opinion on very sad situation. And so I've done a lot of work to understand what's going on. I've talked with the state's leading experts about this, including professors from the U of M. And um, what I understand to be true is that uh, about one in 10,000 ash trees will survive emerald ash borer. So it's not a very oh, good outlook. One in 10,000? And those ash that will survive will likely be... Uh, be in prime, extraordinarily healthy soil, and so probably not in urban soil environments. Um, the trees that can survive will be able to make a tannin uh, that will keep the bugs at bay. But for most of us, we're going to lose the ash trees in our yard uh, one day, or you know, either sooner or later. And a lot of folks are prolonging that by the use of chemical pesticides, insecticides that are injected into the trees. Um, they go, they're systemic insecticides, so they go through every part of the tree. And the companies that are utilizing these right now, um, so, you know, I own a landscaping company and I do a lot of reading about this. I want to know what's going on in the ground. Well, uh, the companies that are utilizing these insecticides, I've been to their meetings, their public meetings, where they say, oh, we don't hurt the bees, we don't hurt any other insects, no pollinators are hurt. Uh, And they couldn't be further from the truth. There's a paper from the U of M that shows that 284 native insects utilize ash tree. They're eating from it. And when we inject a systemic insecticide into ash trees, we certainly are harming all of those, if not killing all of those native insects. Then, of course, there's another paper that shows that in the larval chambers, so where bees raise their baby bees, there's uh, up to 25% of the pollen that's in there is from ash trees. So the companies are going around saying, well, we don't hurt bees, we don't hurt insects, and they're, they're just lying. And it's so sad because, I mean, we form relationships with our trees. And when they're gone, mm-hmm. it is sad. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts, especially, you know, something that's been in the yard for 50 years. Yep. It offers all this cooling, and it's hard to say goodbye to it. And so, you know, someone comes along and says, I can save that for you. We'll just use these chemicals. But it sounds like, you know, you want to believe it. You want to believe, oh, okay, and, and uh, these chemicals, you wouldn't, they wouldn't be hurting anything else, would they? And, well, no, of course not. You know, it's all, it's all safe. And, and really, um, we're, we're allowing ourselves to be fooled when we buy any pesticide ever, because all pesticides are a trap. All pesticides kill much more than the intended target organism, and um, they all get us trapped into the use of more pesticides and synthetic fertilizers. Okay, so, um, and it's, again, uh, one in five trees in the Twin Cities. Mm -hmm. I've heard estimates hundreds of millions, perhaps even a 
billion trees. There's a lot of ash that are going to be devastated by the emerald ash borer. And the best policy is what the Minneapolis Park Board is doing. It's remove and replace. I always tell my clients in our landscape company that we need to replace maybe a few years before we remove. So we're going to watch the ash tree. If it starts to lose any bark on the upper branches, we know it's got an infection of the emerald ash borer. And we need to have it taken down right away because the ash get brittle and they'll fall apart really quickly. So as soon as you see that bark start to go, it's time to take it down. But I would I would caution anybody not to inject their trees with systemic insecticides. Okay, so um, where I, and unfortunately we were doing that, so I have a chestnut tree near where one of the ash trees went down and a patch of hazelnuts near where the other has went down. So. Okay. So now we're going to change the topic and talk about food forests. Food forests. Yeah. So, and so what is a food forest? Well, a food forest is a space where we can grow food for people and wildlife using native plants grown in multiple canopy layers. And so they're a low-maintenance approach to managing land, and they bring an abundance of health into the ecosystem and to our communities. Okay, so there's eight layers to this. That's right, it's an eight layer system. And so starting at in the ground, so all good healthy ecosystems start with healthy soil, and healthy soil really comes out of the mycelial layer. Here we're talking about the mycelium, the fungi that grow together in a, uh, a mat underground, in a matrix. They grow in and through all the roots in the trees and they connect the trees and shrubs and plants together. It- and it's a magical place it's under there. So it's so complete, and and the understanding that we're yes, it's just starting to leap. How much yes. we're understanding. That. Dr. Susan Samard has really helped us understand the connections between the plants and the fungi, and how the the fungi acts as a uh, medium to for the plants to share resources back and forth through. So they will send water or nutrients to one another, uh, the trees and shrubs, throughout the day as as is needed um, in order to keep the whole community healthy. Right. And so uh, Dr. Susan, um, she has a TED Talk out there about how mm-hmm. the bird, how the trees talk to each other. The and wood how, wide web. <laughs> yeah, say the wood wide web. <laughs> and um, I know there were some other news stories. I was trying to check it too because they've just found that they actually are using electricity to talk to each other. So there's just all sorts oh, of yeah. interesting things we're, we're learning about that what's underneath Yes, the there's an intelligent communication between plants. And I say it's intelligent because the plants are asking for and receiving the nutrients that they need exactly when they need them in exactly the amount they need them. Mm-hmm. When they're in healthy soil, they're able to do that in a healthy ecosystem. So the mycelial layer is the first layer of the food forest. And we're going to see some familiar edible yummies in there, some morel mushrooms and chanterelles and lion's mane. All kinds of wonderful edible mushrooms can come out of the forest floor. Um, wine caps are a really easy mushroom for folks to grow. They grow on um, wood mulch or leaf matter, leaf debris. And so you can uh, get, you can purchase uh, spores for any of your favorite edible mushrooms, including wine caps. And with the wine caps, they're so easy to grow, you can just sprinkle the spores around the yard mm. in the garden beds and you'll start to see wine cap mushrooms come out. Of course, with any mushroom foraging, I encourage folks to join the Minnesota Mycological Society for some of their mushroom forays and and walks and uh, classes so that you can learn how to harvest uh, safely of of mushrooms in the wild. But uh, what a great resource 
coming mm-hmm. right out of the ground and easy to grow in our yard. And of course, then those mushrooms will connect to the plants. The fungi connects to the plants, and they're the fungi are mining the soil for sand. They're man, they're mining the sand, silt, and clay for nutrients, and they're delivering those nutrients to the plants. They're also increasing plants' ability to get water out of the soil by at least a thousand times. Hmm. So the the connection between plants and and the mycelial layer layer is incredibly important. And of course, we can derive some food from that too. You know, sometimes what you said right now, sometimes it made me think that maybe humans aren't the smartest creatures on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's certainly all sorts of intelligence out there and ours is only one. And we need to start recognizing all the innate intelligence of all of the other creatures that have kept themselves alive for millions of years. Yeah, maybe why humility is practiced in a lot of faith traditions. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Humility. We could use a little bit more of that. So so then moving up from the mycelial layer, we start to develop the root layer, and we start to look into the root layer for, for a place to find some foods. And everybody's got in their in their own yard somewhere probably a dandelion or two, and I hope we all know that dandelion roots are edible. Mm-hmm. So so our burdock roots, that's another common weed. Um, there's a lot of weeds out there that are going to give us edible roots, stuff we can eat on. Nettle, that's another, and garlic mustard. Um, so a lot of these weeds, you know, we, we think of them as the bane of our existence, but they could be providing food for ourselves or for wildlife. I was been, I never did, I have not had dandelion roots. So how would you prepare dandelion roots? It's good in a stir fry. I've chopped it up. Just got to wash all the dirt off of it so you don't get crunchy bits in your food. But uh, <laughs> just like any, like a carrot, you chop it up. Um, you can use it in a salad, slice it thin or grate it, or you can uh, stir fry. It's really yummy. Hmm. Great. It's got. It's got. I shouldn't say it's super yummy. It's got a bland flavor, and it can take on the flavor of just about anything you cook it with. Okay, so that's the root layer, um, and then it said like cattail and wapato. Wapato. Yes, and so that's the water chestnut that grows native. It's got a um, a leaf like a shield uh, called arrowhead as well, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's got so many names. It's also called Katniss, which is a name that a lot of folks might uh, recognize from popular fiction. Now. Um, cattail and wapato both grow at the edges of our wetlands and our lakes, and they are both incredible food sources. Uh, cattail roots are edible, so are uh, cattail uh, uh, fronds at certain points of the year. And then wapato the, has a little chestnut under the water that can be harvested, and uh, it's, it was a traditional Native American food source. Now, if you want to learn about how to harvest wild foods, there's a great book by Sam Thayer called mm-hmm. Forager's Harvest. He's got a number of books, but that's a good one to start on. Um, and he talks about wapato and, and uh, harvesting cattail in there as well. Yeah, I've had Sam on the show before. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, He's it's great. been a while. Yeah, I, yeah. I, it's been a while. So I think if people Googled or searched the terms Sam Thayer and Food Freedom Rio, they can hear that. So oh, excellent. I'm going to have to check that out. But okay, so then we get to our ground cover layer. Yes, and in the ground cover layer, a lot of folks are going to also find these some of these plants in their own yard. So uh, wood sorrel. That's my number one favorite edible plant. It's got a heart-shaped leaf, and um, it has a little yellow clover flower on it. Uh, it's delicious. It tastes like lemon. It's zesty. Mm-hmm. And so you put a little bit of that, chop it up in your salads. It's so delicious. Wood sorrel. Um, there are other forms of sorrel. They're also very zesty. And then uh, also, of course, Virginia water leaf. Um, we might have a lot of folks might have that growing in their in their yards, kind of all around the edges in the gardens. That's another fun, yummy edible. 
So we're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about the uh, creating a food forest in, in our yards and in our communities and and building it back. Because the world was once, this Twin Cities was the land of Dakota people, and they were living in a food forest. And can we make that happen again? Absolutely. We can. Yeah. We can. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're speaking with Russ Henry of Minnehaha Landscaping. So come and turn me Hey Jude, don't make it bad Take a sad song and make it better Remember So sad songs, lots of sad songs. One in five of the trees in the Twin Cities are ash trees. Emerald ash borer is, you know, really wiping these out. Um... But we can make it better. We can create a food forest, and uh, which was what the way this area was. And so on the last break, we were talking about the eight layers um, of what composes a, a food mm-hmm. forest. It's not just like we plant these trees here and there. It's, right. it's far more complex than that, as yeah. life is. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to grow multiple canopy layers. And that's what's going to give us a low-maintenance uh, solution to our landscape. If we build in eight or nine different canopy layers of plants, all all native plants that can spread around and fill in the gaps, then they're going to take over and they're going to manage the land for us in a way that's producing benefits for us and the wildlife. So we had been talking about the... Um, the mycelial layer in the ground and then the root layer also in the ground and then coming out of the ground. The first layer is the ground cover layer. And we talked about some of my favorites. And then for ground cover, um, what I really have discovered is an excellent ground cover is uh, the bee lawn. So bee lawn is a a kind of a thing that's sweeping the state here. And uh, it's essentially replacing your regular lawn with a blend of clover, fescue grass, self-heal, and creeping thyme. And there's a seed mix that you can get to do this. Uh, And so we install a lot of bee lawns for folks. Now, when you're making a food forest, that that ground cover layer can be made out of bee lawn, and then it's super inexpensive. White clover has has an edible component to it, so does self-heal and, of course, creeping thyme. So you're getting something edible built in. And the uh, white clover and the fescue grass and the self-heal will do really well in, in the sun or shade. So you can use these all around up underneath your your uh, trees and shrubs, and uh, they make a really great ground cover layer. And um, so one of the things I've done now for decades, because I know the plants that come back each year, and, and I can pick them. I may not be able to name them, but I know them. I know them really well, especially of these one onions that have been coming up for 20 years, whatever. Oh, I know some of my mother-in-law gave me walking Egyptian onions. But, uh-huh. um, but anyhow, I can just go out in the yard. I can grab the ones I know. And then throw them in with some eggs, and it just makes a wonderful quick meal. Just go out and gather whatever greens you have and yeah. throw it in with some eggs. There's nothing more delicious than a home-gathered meal, something no. you get right out of the yard. And how to forage in your yard. Oh, I it's, mean, it's so good. It's so good and so healthy for so many on so many levels, right? right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, um, so we were in the ground cover layer, and then the next layer is the – herbaceous layer. And so that layer is going to have a lot of our uh, perennials in it and some stuff that we're familiar with. So rhubarb, of course, that's a perennial that we can eat the stock of delicious. Mm -hmm. Um, We can also have our uh, horseradish 
and garlic, asparagus, mm-hmm. perennial vegetables, we're kind of thinking. We can also think about, you know, some of our edible annuals, uh, including, you know, arugula, cilantro, kale, lettuce, dill, these kind of things. And it's, a lot of those are self-seeding, so they'll keep coming back if you kind of cultivate a little spot for them in the in the landscape. Um, but these are, now we're talking about plants that will grow up out of the ground and die back to the ground during the winter. Um, so they're herbaceous, that's how we speak of them. And then, and then they're gonna provide in this layer, we're gonna have seeds, we're gonna have edible leaves, and we're gonna have a little bit of uh, vegetables, uh, you know, some, some edible roots, the asparagus stalks. Um, one of my favorite wild plants for this layer is milkweed. Mm-hmm. So milkweed can be eaten like asparagus in the spring, and um, you know you can cut the stalks off and and uh, sauté them or cook them, put them in a salad. They're delicious, and uh, and of course milkweed being critical habitat for monarch butterfly. Yeah, and then um, now I'm going to ask another question. The horseradish, because I've had it grown, but I've been almost reluctant to harvest it. But now it's been there for like three to four years, so I know I can start harvesting. Can you harvest that and spread it like like you do Uh rhubarb? How do you do that? Absolutely, yeah. The root, of course, you can take some of the root and and harvest it and eat it, and then you can put some of the root back in the ground and regrow it. Okay. So you can even buy horseradish directly from the store. If you get a chunk of the root, you can plant that in the ground. Really? Yeah. Same with sun sunchokes. You can buy Jerusalem artichoke at the grocery store. That's a native plant. Um, and if you if you get some of those fresh out of the produce section, you put a few into your garden bed. They'll get eight feet tall, and they're a sunflower that's one of the very last things to bloom in the uh, in the Minnesota garden. So, of course, this approach to landscaping, as opposed to the monoculture green purpose, um, feeds a lot of different life. Oh, you're feeding everybody. Birds, bees, butterflies. You're going to get hummingbirds. You're going to have rabbits and squirrels and deers. And, you know, everybody's going to come by. It's going to be like a Disney movie outside, your, <laughs> outside the window. It's a wonderful world. Yeah, we get a little play that, play that song. It's a wonderful world. Oh, actually, what's the? it's a small world after all. It's that's a small the, world. That's, yeah. that's the Disney one. Okay, so then the next one is the vine layer. Yes. Yeah, so the vine layer, a lot of times, you know, we don't necessarily remember the vine layer, but the vine layer can kind of cover ground, you know, get take up some sunlight in all those little niches and areas and spots that uh, the rest of the plants aren't able to find. And so a couple of really important native vines that aren't used anywhere near enough, but provide a lot of protein, ground beans. Uh, ground beans are an excellent native vine and ground nut. Uh, both are robust mm-hmm. native food producing vines. So they're both native plants. They'll grow uh, freely and very easily. And getting established is pretty simple. Um, and so, you know, those are a couple. Then you can always think about having your cucumbers and zucchinis and squash and other, you know, vining uh, fruits and vegetables that we're familiar with at the edge of the fruit, of the fruit forest as well. Because those, of course, need a lot of sun. Yep. So, and um, yeah, so then there's the pole beans and pumpkins and squash and actually mixing this with the area that has the, the food forest. Absolutely. Having those, the, and so you have to think about what areas are going to get a lot of sun. Uh-huh. Yep. So where is the sun? Where's the edge for the sun? So you're always planning for sun. And the, while the ground beans and groundnuts can take a little bit more shade, you're going to think about having some of these you know, more vegetable producing plants out around the edges so you can get some of that sunlight. Great. And then understory. Well, we don't want to skip the shrub layer. Oh, the shrub layer. The shrub layer is, a, is an exciting one because that's where we find all kinds of fruits. 
So we've got bearberries and blackberries and currants, and uh, uh, we've got uh, Nanking cherries, all kinds of wonderful service berry regent, um, honeyberry. Have you ever had a honeyberry? I have. I have. Our honeyberries are doing fantastic nice. in the yards. So we've got really good honeyberries there. We get lots. They're a so, big plant now. I don't know, four or five feet. It's uh, it's a wonderful honeybush berry. Excellent. Yeah, I'm always recommending honeyberry. They taste a lot like blueberries. Yeah. And yet they are very easy to grow. You don't have to acidify the soil. You don't. You know, we just added a little compost, and they the honeyberries go nuts. They go nuts, and there's no um, insects. Like we do get, uh, we have some problems with our raspberries and those little white flies, but mm-hmm. nothing seems to bother the honeybush berries. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Now I love to go looking for native fruits at Outback Nursery. That's one of our favorite uh-huh. nurseries to hit up, um, and they they have a wonderful selection, and a great online catalog. Um, and, uh, you know, you're thinking about your, your selection, your, your shrub layer as being between about 12 feet tall and, uh, down to about, you know, three or four feet tall. And, and in that area, there are so many different fruits, um, that we can fit in. Serviceberry and honeyberry are two that I really highly recommend. Those high bush cranberries. Um, oh, yeah. And, and they're really good for um, uh, digestion. Digestion. Issues. Yep. They're that's wonderful right. for that. So we're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to learn about uh, Seward Co op CSA Fair in person this year. Yay. Yay. And then we'll come back and learn more about Food Forest with Russ Henry. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Now I've grown to be a man. Well, it lingers deep within. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person dreaming of food forest. And we're going to be talking more about food forest with Russ Henry. But first, um, we're, joining us now is uh, Cara, uh, Cara from uh, Seward Co-op. Uh, welcome. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Okay, so so I love the CSA Fair at Seward Co-op, and now you're back to being in person this year. So tell us about this event. Yeah, so the event will take place on Saturday, April 23rd from 11 to 2, and it will be in the parking lot of the Co-op's administrative building, which is just a few blocks down from the Franklin store. So the address is 2601 East Franklin Avenue. And as you mentioned, it's the first time that we're hosting this in person for the last two years. So we're really excited to gather again under a big tent. It's a rain or shine event. Um, And for those who maybe are feeling a little less comfortable with an in-person event, we are still offering a virtual experience. And we have a farmer guide on our website at sewer.coop slash CSA underscore fair. And one of the things I just love about um, that the fact that Seward Co-op is promoting CSA is, is in, in one sense of the world, word, you're actually promoting your competitors. Sure. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, I mean, this year we're celebrating our 50th anniversary. And as we celebrate 50 years, we re- are really reflecting on the legacy and continued work to support a thriving and resilient local food system. Um So that may sound a little counterintuitive, but as a co-op, we believe when farmers do well and the local food system is strong, we all are a lot better off. And that's a big part of our mission to sustain a healthy community. And that's really the way nature works. 
I mean, nature actually is more co- collaborative than competitive. We kind of have this um, narrative out there about it being a doggy dog world and all this other stuff, but it's actually. I'm going to even have Russ come in here a little bit on this because because the, the nature is actually absolutely yeah. We see that from the ground up when the as the mycelium and the fungi are feeding the plants back and forth nutrients and water to one another in the wood wide web. Of course, we're seeing that sharing and uh, among ecotype plants, they are collaborating in order to eke out to to to, to um, make an existence together. Right. And so the CSA fair for those I think most people know what CSAs mean, but do you want to share what 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 it does mean? Kara? Kara? Oh, sure. It's um community supported agriculture. So it's an opportunity for consumers to buy produce directly from farmers. And really the benefit of doing this for farmers is that they can get the investment that they need for seeds and soil or whatever it is that they may need to get the growing season started. They can get that investment up front. And share some of the stories of the farmers that are participating in the CSA fair. Yeah, we have some new and emerging farmers coming to the fair. We have Naima Dor, who is the executive director of the Somali American Farmer Association. That organization doesn't necessarily have their own farm, but Naima does. Um, we'll have the Hmong American Farmer Association, which has been at the fair for many years. We'll have Jack Hedeen from Featherstone Farm, um, who has a longstanding relationship with uh, Sewer Co-op. Just to mention a few, there's a few others like Sinfronteras, um, Burning River Farms. Um, yeah, there's a, there's about 28 different farms that will be there. And there is a CSA farm guide on your website. Yes, yes. And, of course, activities for the kids with Midwest Food Connection. As always. Yeah, (laughs) we invited Midwest Food Connection, the local nonprofit that we work with, who's really kind of our our presence in the schools with kids and teaching them the importance of knowing, like, where your food comes from and things like that. So, yes, they will be at the fair again and doing some kind of fun activity. In the past, they've done, like, coloring sheets. They've had kids plant seeds and take them home. They have a lot of different things that they do to keep the kids entertained. So, again, it's Saturday, April 23rd from 11 to 2, and it's located in the Seward Co-op Creamery parking lot, 2601 East Franklin Avenue. Um, And it's a fun thing just to go out and talk to farmers, get to know the people you're growing your food with, being in relationship with each other. It's it's a wonderful thing and encourage people to check that out. So um, anything else you'd like to say? Uh, hope to see you there. Hope to see you there. Great. And then um, getting back to you, Russ, you've actually planted some of the stuff at Seward yeah. Co-op. Yeah. A uh, long time ago when Seward moved down the road, uh, we were invited to come in and uh, install uh, grapes and raspberries and cherry shrubs and all kinds of stuff that's still there to this day you can come and eat from, along with a bunch of other pollinator uh perennials in the gardens and uh, we, we made a big rain garden in the back um, it filters all the water that lands on their roof and most of the water from their parking lot and then uh, we also installed a number of raised beds on the boulevards which I continually send folks there to see because they're an example of my favorite type of raised bed which is to get a, a circular steel fire ring 
about three feet wide and 12 inches tall. They're really quite inexpensive, and they'll last forever, as is evidenced by them lasting so long on the Sewer Co-op Boulevard. Wonderful. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, um, Kara Barr with um, Seward Co-op. And uh, and everyone, uh, check it out on Saturday, April 23rd. And so we're going to go back and talk about food forests because we were talking about the eight layers of the food forest. So should we repeat that? Yes, absolutely. So we started, of course, with the mycelial layer in the ground, also in the ground. We've got the root layer coming out of the ground. Then we've got the ground cover layer. And then above that, our herbaceous layer with perennials and annuals in there. Above that then, uh, kind of finding all the hidden light in the forest is the vine layer. And then the shrub layer with all the berries we love so much, blueberries and chokeberries and currants and elderberries and gooseberries, everybody's in there. Now, we haven't yet talked about the understory layer. And the understory is a place where we can find, again, some more wonderful edible plants, wild plum, black cherry, Pin cherry, choke cherry, mulberry, serviceberry trees, uh, a number of different excellent plants for the understory. You can also think about your favorite uh, pears, apples, plums, cherry trees as being good uh, for the edge of the forest as a, as a portion of the understory layer there as well. So it's a place where we can find excellent food to eat. Um, sometimes in a uh, understory, I will pop in some stuff that people don't eat, but birds love like mountain ash, not, not susceptible to emerald ash borer. Excellent tree gets orange berries on it that, um, that all kinds of birds come through and eat in the fall. And then uh, service berry, which I mentioned and pagoda dogwood and pagoda dogwood, you know, people can't eat the berries on it, but the birds can, and they love them. Service berries, birds go crazy for those. Oh yeah. They go so crazy. Yeah. I got a nice, and they, they, Spread nicely too, and uh-huh. so it's a. Uh, and then I know uh, so humans love those too. I yep. actually haven't. I, I haven't. I haven't harvested mine. The birds. Those, they get it all. <laughs> they get it all. <laughs> <laughs> There's the service berries and then mulberries. You know that mulberries are almost on every property. The birds plant them for free. Um, they're wonderful in so many ways, and uh, I really encourage folks if you have mulberries growing in the fence line, you know maybe try and save a few of them because they're great. You can. Anytime you're going to harvest fruit from a, you know, a berries from a tree or shrub, you can lay down a clean tarp and shake the tree or shake the shrub, and then all the berries, the the ripe ones, will fall down on the tarp. That's the easiest way. And a mulberry, it's a great, you know, makes great jam. You can harvest them real easy like that. Very easy. And then they get bigger. The berries get bigger as the tree gets older. That's right. So some of these old trees, they have some big juicy fruits. Big juicy fruits, and you get the young ones. Like, well, they look like they're so little, but as the tree gets older, yeah. it it gets bigger. So, uh, yeah, and then, of course, there's purple mulberries, white mulberries, red mulberries, all sorts of different ones. The red ones are the tallest. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, now the part we think of in a food forest is the overstory. So then the overstory is when when we're planning our food forests, we're thinking of succession. We're, we're going to plan for a forest that's going to outlive us by a long time and going to be serving many generations of people. And so we might add in some sugar maples for their sap. We might add in some basswood because, you know, basswood leaves are edible every spring. Uh, The leaves are delicious. You get a whole salad on, you know, a tree that's like a giant salad buffet. Uh, basswood trees, yeah, absolutely. You can and eat basswood leaves? Absolutely, they're good. Okay. Yep, they make a great salad. And, of course, you can also, uh, you know, the basswood is also one of the early bloomers for the bees. So very important in the food forest. And then we think about uh, adding in, you know, it's critical to have some of the, some more of those proteins. So oaks, 
very important to get going. We used to have chestnuts all over the place uh, in America, but uh, they, they died from chestnut blight. So there are some resistant varieties that we can plant again. Well, and I do have an American chestnut, Excellent. which we got from the Badger Badger Set Farm in um, southeast Minnesota. So nice. Philip. Anyhow, Philip, I can't remember his name. It's almost okay. here, Philip Rogers, but he has a PhD and he's been he's been working on restoring the hazelnuts and the chestnuts. It's been kind of his life mission, and I love it. And so they have they have some uh, trees, also some um, hickory and pecan trees. Oh yeah. yeah so well, when I was a kid in Texas. We used to eat the pecans all the time. <laughs> it's so good to pick those. And then I think about uh, the, uh, for me, one of the most critical elements of the overstory is adding in something that's just going to serve the wildlife, such as white pine. Pine, red pine, blue spruce, black spruce. These are trees are going to get 75 feet tall eventually. They'll live for hundreds of years in a healthy soil. And so um, they'll be producing nuts on their cones every year that the birds will go crazy for. And uh, all kinds of wildlife can eat from those trees. So we think about adding in a, uh, a gift for future generations when we plant small trees that will outlive us. Okay, so... As you're talking, is this something you can do in an urban lot? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Okay. It sounds complicated to do in an urban the, lot. The, the way to do it and the easy way to do it is to kind of start small. So I always tell folks, you know, start with the bee lawn. You know, transition your regular lawn into a bee lawn. Add some clover. When it's about to rain, go spread some white Dutch white clover seeds out or get some bee lawn seed mix from Twin City Seed. They're a great place to get your seed mix from. And uh, spread some of that around the yard. Start growing the lawn out. Practice no mow may so that the pollinators have a safe place to come every May. Uh, and then after you get your bee lawn established... No, I'm going to slow down on that one. No, no mow, mow May. Yep, so that your bees and butterflies are safe when they're getting forage from your yard in May. They're not right. going to get run over by the lawnmower. Yeah. Um, and then uh, after you've got your bee lawn established, try a pollinator pocket garden. So you get a few pollinator plants, uh, you know, some Joe Pie weed, some Meadow Blazing Star, some Milkweed, some Bee Balm, some Calamintha, these kind of things. Put them in a small space and start growing those out. Eventually, you can spread that out and take over the whole lawn, and then you've got yourself a meadow restoration. So see, we're kind of building the forest in steps, and along the way, you're going to plant in some of your favorite fruit trees and shrubs so that by the time, you know, five years, ten years from now, these things are going to be nice and full of fruits, and you're going to be able to eat from them. Wonderful. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back. We're going to talk more about Food Forest uh, with Russ Henry of Minnehaha Landscaping. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Dare prudence. Let's all be prudent. Let's be so prudent. Beautiful. It's a beautiful song. I love that yeah. song. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're talking about food forests with Russ Henry. And Russ is the president of Minnehaha Falls Landscaping and Kevin G. Gardens. He's also the founder of Be Safe Minneapolis. Um, growing and protecting ecosystems across Minnesota for decades. So 
landscaping is not just planting a tree. That's not the way. That's not prudent thinking. It's, it's not just. It's, it's actually so much more complex, yeah. and that's okay. It can be complex. Right? It can be complex. It can be messy, and that can be actually a very big benefit to have a little bit of mess in the in the in the landscape. We got to think about you know the pollinators. Uh, they're building their nests and hives from the scraps that we leave in the garden. So the leftover plant stalks, they'll come and chew off pieces of those turn them into paper in their mouth and then spit them out making a nest or a hive. It's uh, it's an amazing thing that all we got to do is leave a little mess around to, to support and promote. So, okay, so the show has been about food forests, and so there's eight la- layers when you think about a food forest. And, yes, people can do this in an urban area. Um, and, uh, uh, and then one thing is if it's possible to be working with the neighbors. Absolutely. You know, in yeah. community on, on these because – that's we want a diverse tree system. That's absolutely. We need to be thinking about our uh, in terms of communities of landscapes working together. So uh, my my neighborhood, Longfellow neighborhood in Minneapolis, is I believe the very first neighborhood to be certified by the National Wildlife uh, uh, Association for um, being a habitat neighborhood. And um, so that means that we have enough certified yards in the neighborhood to become a whole neighborhood certified. And in order to be a certified yard, you've got to have pollinator habitat, some fruit-bearing plants. Um, You've got to have a little bit of uh, wildlife space so that they're talking about having some sticks and logs and branches and some leftover plant material and debris. Mm -hmm. Um, These kind of, you know, uh, we don't need to have lawn mowed in straight lines in every single space that we go into. We can have uh, in a landscape that we live in and and have a wonderful experience of living in. We can have an abundance of different plants coming out of the ground and serving all sorts of different wildlife. Right. And so that organization, because now I want to go on like a next door neighbor app or some other things and try to see if we couldn't do that in my area. You know? Absolutely. So yeah. what's that called again? It's the, it's the National Wildlife Foundation. National. Okay. I'm going to look yep. up at that. And then the other thing we started the show with is uh, the um, emerald ash borer problem. And so I, I we had to cut down four trees yeah. um, in our yard. And it really, I mean, it I miss them. I yeah. already miss them. And yeah. and I have a chestnut that I know will benefit from them, but it's just that tree canopy is so important. It yeah. air conditions our house. It feeds the birds. It provides mental yep. and well-being. So so to try to um, – so what should we do knowing that one in five trees in the Twin Cities um, are going to – be destroyed. Yes. Well, let's back up a second. You know, uh, we through Be Safe Minneapolis, our organization, we go into schools a lot, and we get the opportunity to uh, present to children about solutions for sustainable landscaping and sustainable futures. And uh, at the beginning of the conversations, we're always asking the students, "Okay, so how's the world doing? You know, is everything okay with the world?" And they'll say, "No, <laughs> no, it's not doing good." And we'll we'll ask, "Well, what's going on?" And, you know, this problem with the ash trees touches on everything that the kids are saying, you know, from climate change to extinction to diseases. All of this is we can see it in our in our backyards, in our front yards, in the ash trees when we when we have to cut the ash trees down because we've invited a non-native organism to take uh, take hold of the space, the emerald ash borer, Um, because of our human folly and error. We've opened up the forest to devastation, and that devastation is inevitable, regardless of how many chemicals we pump at it. The fact that 
the major solution that's being offered is chemical intensive solution really points to another major problem of extinction because if we're trying to kill one bug and we're killing over 280 different native insects at the right. same time. So so you uh, you don't think people should poison their tr- ash ash trees People to save need them. to really think twice about this. It, we're killing ash trees uh, we're, excuse me we're killing uh, all of the native insects that utilize ash trees and that's over 280 native, native insects including bees where the studies are showing that over 25% of the pollen in the larval chambers is from ash trees. So I do encourage folks, don't treat the ash tree, go ahead and replace and then remove. So get that replacement in the ground while the ash tree's still up, you know, so put another baby tree somewhere not too far away from it, pick something other than an ash. And, uh, and then as the, as you see the emerald ash borer develop, you'll see on your ash tree, some some of the upper branches lose some of their bark, and that's the first sign that you've got emerald ash borer. And as soon as that first sign uh, comes, it's time to cut the tree down. Um, they they can't be saved once they're infected. Right. Um, and um, so one in five trees, should 20% of our trees be one species of trees? Well, um, you know, that it depends. It depends. And that's kind of how the forest was with the chestnuts before. And um, much of Minnesota forest was white pine. Um, so in a balanced ecosystem, you will find a diversity. Uh, however, the the majority of the biomass is going to be in a, in a limited number of species. So red and white pine covered most of the state. And at the periphery, at the edges of those white pine forests, were all the oaks and maples and aspens and birch and everybody else. Uh, so there was diversity. But there was also predominance by some some uh, um, uh, peak succession species. Right. So um, tell people how they can get a hold of you and um, uh, also uh, some of the different stuff that you do. You're a certified uh, soil life consultant, for instance. That's right. Yes. Well, all of our landscape work is organic. So we do organic lawn care, garden maintenance, garden installation. We install rain gardens, butterfly gardens, uh pocket prairies, meadow restoration, food forests, and then we do uh, retaining walls, land, uh, walkways, uh, patios, uh, decks, pergolas, fences. Uh, so we can build anything that you want in the landscape uh, and make all of your dreams come true there, as well as bring in on all the butterflies and the bees and the hummingbirds. Okay. And I, I mean, this the food forest is such... Um, are you hopeful about the future? That's, I guess, what I'm trying to get to. Are you hopeful about the future? I mean, like you touched on it earlier, we're seeing so many negatives. Yes. It's not time for us to hope. It's time for us to work. And so I'm workful about the future. And so uh, I plan to work uh, to try to save this planet from imminent destruction that has been caused by the same species I'm a part of. I love the way you said that. Yeah, It's not time to be hopeful about the future. It's time to be workful about the future. And that work is actually joyful. It is. The work of bringing health back to land is the most exciting and most happy thing you could also, you could ever do. Yay. Yeah, what a great time to end on this thing. So Russ Henry, Minnehaha Falls Landscaping, Be Safe um, Minneapolis, uh, and also Giving Tree Gardens. Um, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio. Um, and check out uh, Seward's in-person uh, CSA fair. Uh, get to know your farmer. And that is on Saturday, uh, Saturday, April 23rd from 11 to 2. Thank you so much. Have an awesome week. 